0: Father, thank you that in Christ, having heard the message of our salvation, the gospel, having believed that we're sealed with the spirit of promise for the day of redemption, thank you that he is our earnest, our down payment, our guarantee, that the good work you began that you will complete, that nothing can separate us from your love that is found in Christ Jesus, and for the promise of your son that he would be with us even unto the end of the age. Father, we know that we live in perilous times. These days you said that would come, you prophesied in scripture, and we are witnessing them in this evil age. And so we need your help to be strengthened as we do each Lord's day. And so as we are opening your word, we're asking you to open our hearts. Thank you for those who served so sacrificially in this past week in games outside with snacks, with uh, science experiments, with crafts, with teaching the children in small groups, with caring for infants in the nursery, in drama, and music, and a host of other responsibilities. And how as one body, though many members, you brought us together and allowed us to serve as a team. Thank you for the lives of the children that were impacted, those who received Jesus this week. We pray for parents, that those who are members of our church, that you would help us to have wisdom to guard first our own hearts. You told us to watch over our own hearts with all diligence, that we might be able in turn to bring our children up in the discipline and admonition of Christ. We pray for those parents who entrusted their children to us this week who have no church home. We pray, Father, that they would know that they are loved and welcomed here that this would be a place where they could grow. So speak to them, even some who have come today. Father, thank you that you did not abandon us, but just as you promised through the prophets of old, you would take our heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, that you would place your spirit within us, that we might walk in your statutes. And so thank you, Spirit of God, for being our helper today, not only as we seek to live a godly life, but as we seek to understand the book that you gave. And so I ask that you would come and fill me and anoint me and work in the heart of every person who will hear this message. I ask it for the honor of Jesus and in his holy name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you? The book of Revelation chapter 13. Most people in America can at least find the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation. But most Americans cannot pronounce the title of this book. Most call it the book of Revelations. Someone on the news just the other day on Fox News, they were referring to it as the book of Revelations. There's no such book in the Bible. It's the book of Revelation, singular. There's not a multiplicity of Revelations, but one single Revelation that God entrusted to His Son is the one who is raised from the dead. Whom he gave to John, who in turn gave it to us, his bond servants now it 's in the book of Revelation that we find how God will sum up human history as we know it, and if you 've been with us we 've been studying here in the twelfth and thirteenth chapters seven key personages that will take prominence, especially in the last half of the seven-year tribulation period. Right now, the 13th chapter, for the first time ever, this unholy trinity is brought together. Satan called the dragon, the false Christ, the antichrist as we typically refer to him, and the false prophet. Satan, the dragon, will assume the role of God the Father. He will seek worship from men during this time. And indeed, people will worship him. And they will worship him through the Antichrist. As we approach the Father through the Son, people will literally worship the devil through the Antichrist. And the false prophet will take the role of God the Holy Spirit. Just as the Spirit of God points men to Jesus, He will point men to the Antichrist. And we'll see His ministry when we come to the second half of the 13th chapter. Now, these two chapters will be of great significance, especially to those tribulation saints and to those Jews who are going to pour over the Scriptures during this seven-year period, many of whom are going to believe that Jesus is Lord. And so they'll study these like no one's business. But remember, while it is speaking of a future events, it has great relevance for us today. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good deed. And so what we're studying today has great relevance for God's people, whatever time in human history they may be living. Now, Satan has always been the enemy of God's people, whether it's Old Testament saints, whether it's church saints or whether it's the coming tribulation saints. We studied in the 12th chapter how Satan hates the Jewish people. And there's coming a time in this seven-year period where right in the middle, Satan will literally be cast out of heaven for the first time ever to the earth with all of his fallen demons. And hell on earth is going to have an expression like we've never, ever, ever seen before. He has always hated the Jewish people too whether it's through Hitler or uh, through the Caesars or through Stalin or whoever it might be, Satan hates the Jewish people. Why? Because it's the Jewish people that gave us the Savior of the world. Now, he is going to, in a unique time frame called the Great Tribulation, express himself like he's never done it before. And he's going to do it through an individual whom, to cut to the chase, we simply typically refer to him as the Antichrist. I'm calling him the master spin doctor because that's exactly what the Antichrist will do. He will be a great deceiver. You know, in the last few years, we've been introduced to a new term. We call it fake news. And we use the term fake news to describe either the sensationalism or the character assassinations or some information that's not accurate. And that sometimes these networks are forced to come back and say, we were wrong. But what's interesting is what you used to uniquely find in the tabloids, now you find in the major news networks. But understand, fake news is nothing more than deception. It's a lie. And one of the things that will characterize the end of time will be deception. Listen to these words from 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Remember, there are two critical terms that we've discussed. One is last days. Peter identifies the start of the last days with Pentecost. When the miracle of Pentecost happened, Peter said, this is exactly what God said would happen in the last days. And because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Jesus, that nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back, we've been in the last days. Nonetheless, I think now we're in the last of the last days. But there's a second term called latter days. And this term, latter days, or latter times, used by Ezekiel, Daniel, and Paul, refer to those very days at the end of the last days before Jesus comes again at his second coming. And in those latter times, the Bible says, like never before, there will be doctrines of demons. In other words, some of the teachings that will come from pulpits, will not be inspired from the Holy Scripture, but they'll be inspired by the evil one. And I believe we are seeing that come to the forefront like never before. And so as we're learning here in the Revelation, there is coming a time on earth when spin-doctoring will be achieved like it's never been achieved in human history. Satan, through his world leader, is going to spin lies like the world has never seen, and he'll come through this man called the Antichrist, whom he will get the world to follow. Now, he has given many titles in the Bible, in fact, over 30. These are some that we've studied already in Daniel and Revelation. He's called the Little Horn in Daniel 7, 8. In the ninth chapter of Daniel, he's called the Prince who is to come. Daniel 11, one of the great chapters on the Antichrist. You actually learn more about the Antichrist in the second half of Daniel 11 than in any other chapter of the Bible. There he's called the king who does as he pleases. He's called a king of fierce countenance. Paul refers to him to the church at Thessalonica as the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness. He's called by Zechariah the prophet a foolish shepherd. He's called the worthless shepherd, the willful king, a despicable person. But probably his best-known name is simply Antichrist. Now, by the way, only the apostle John uses the term Antichrist. Doesn't even use it in the Revelation. Typically refers to this man simply as the beast. But he uses it five times in his uh, letters that he writes. Now, the word anti, the prefix, it's the Greek word anti, it comes directly in English, A N T I. The word can have one of two nuances. It can mean the opposite of, and so we get our word like antonym, or it can mean instead of, and so, or in the place of. And in the New Testament, in describing this man as in the Old Testament prophets, he comes in that he is the opposite of Messiah, but he also comes in the place of the Messiah, in the place of Christ. Now, we've been learning that the stage is being set for this future time. People often ask me, what in the world is happening in our nation? What is going on in this world? What is the world coming to? I'll tell you what it's coming to. It's coming to Jesus. The stage is being set. People say the world is out of control. No, it is under the control of a sovereign God who is setting the pieces of His great divine chessboard before us in order to bring His Son back from heaven. It is in perfect control. And if this Antichrist were here today... And if he were ruling, but he will not rule until the church is removed, he would probably be the man of the year in Time magazine. He would probably be the man of human history because that is the way people are going to think of him. He is a miracle worker. He is a peacemaker like the world has never seen before, but he is an imitator. He is a counterfeiter. He is a liar. And so here in Revelation 13, we'll learn more about him And the dragon, Satan, who empowers him, and the false prophet who serves alongside of him. Five messages from this 13th chapter. This is the second. Now today, we'll focus on verses 3 and 4. But there are many things in the first two verses last week... I did not get to, so we're going to go a little bit deeper into those verses, and then we'll cut our teeth into verses 3 and 4. But I want us to read at least the first nine verses so we have a sense of the flow of where this is heading. Follow along, Revelation 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names." And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne in great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words of blasphemies, and authorities to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, Peter said, I want to stir you up by way of reminder And Paul does the same thing because he knows that repetition is the great teacher. And if there was anyone who repeated himself over and over again, it was the Lord Jesus. And so if you yawn when a pastor repeats himself, you're defying the Lord Jesus and you're defying a basic principle in Scripture. So I want you to pay attention because my desire is that when you're done with Revelation, you can think your way all the way through the book. So let me bring you from the broad context into the immediate context. I hope by now you know that the theme of the whole book is found in the first chapter of the seventh verse, namely that he is coming with the clouds. And this is one of a handful of books in all of the Bible where God gives you not only just the theme, but he gives you the outline of the book. And the outline of the book, the divine outline, and I'm sure God gave it to us in the Revelation so we wouldn't mess it up. Is found in Revelation 119. Therefore, he tells John, Jesus is speaking, right, the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things that will take place after these things. And so by the time you come to chapter 1 and verse 19 where the outline is given as this next slide shows, he has already recorded in the first chapter the vision of the glorified Christ, the things that he had seen. And by the way, it's a unique vision, and I'll explain why in just a moment. So chapter 1, what he had seen, he sees Jesus in his glorified body. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are present, the things that are. He's writing about seven literal, actual churches, that are functioning in that day, and he writes seven letters to him. Actually, Jesus gives the letters. John records them. And so after the second and third chapter is completed, you come to that section where he deals with the after these things section of the book, the things that will take place after these things. That's the future. And so twice over, so you cannot miss it, He takes the last three words in English, two in Greek, metatata, after these things in the outline, and he begins chapter 4, verse 1, and he ends chapter 4, verse 1 with the same words, metatata, after these things. He said, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Metatata, after these things. And so the church is nowhere mentioned again until they come back at the second coming to Planet Earth, where Jesus will literally step on the Mount of Olives. That's what the prophet Zechariah says. He will literally come to Earth, and that prayer, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on Earth as it is in Heaven," will literally be fulfilled. All that the God's people have prayed for for centuries. Now, when that time begins to unfold, and by the way, so this is what we call the Rapture. A door in Heaven is opened up. And what is unique about 4-1 and what follows in the next verse are there are 24 elders who are mentioned. There are three throne room visions that are recorded for us in the Bible: one in Daniel, one in Isaiah, and one in the Revelation. The one in Daniel and Isaiah are identical. The one in Revelation is identical to Daniel and Isaiah, with one exception. There's 24 elders which we saw, I showed you, letting Scripture interpret Scripture as a representative number, those 24 elders representing the church that has been caught up, that has been raptured. It's called the harpazo. It's translated into English as caught up in the Latin Bible. It comes as rapture. And so there are many terms, like all these in the stained, window, stained glass window behind you. Those are all Latin terms that we often use. Why? Because for a thousand years... The only translation of the Bible the church had was Latin. It was the single longest translation of the Bible. So we have words like trinity or rapto, which come into English as rapture. So this will begin a time that is unparalleled in human history, unprecedented in human history. So the church is caught up. In the fourth chapter, we see them worshiping. In the fifth chapter, we see the Lord Jesus standing next to God the Father, and he is handed the seven-sealed scroll. And he opens up one scroll, one one seven sealed scroll, and he opens up one seal at a time, and God's wrath begins to unfold on the earth. Jesus, in describing this time, said these words, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, that is believers, those days will be cut short. And so in chapter 6, all the way through the 19th verse... You have a prophecy that Daniel wrote about 600 years before Christ. It's called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. Some of you were not here when I studied Daniel, and I think it would be very helpful for you. If you can't listen to the whole book, download the app. You can listen to it while you're in the car. Search the scriptures.org download the app and listen to the four messages on Daniel 9, especially the last three. Why? Because God gives us the schematic for the entire book of Revelation. And so when you have the schematic in front of you, you'll be able to see how John puts all the meat on the skeleton, which is what he does here in the Revelation. And so in chapters 6 through 19, You have the wrath of God unfolding upon the earth. It has never happened in this way. It is going to happen. There is different dimensions of God's wrath in the Bible. Romans 1 speaks of the wrath of God that is being revealed. When a people, when an individual, when a nation says, No God, no praise, no thanks... Three times over, the wrath of God is revealed, and God gives them over. He gives them over to immorality, heterosexual immorality. He gives them over to homosexual perversion, and then to a list of all kinds of vices. That's Romans 1. We are seeing Romans 1 lived out before us. And it's not getting better with every month that goes by. It's getting worse. Why? Because we've raised our puny little fists in the face of God Almighty we said, no God, no thanks. And God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. That's the wrath of God that is being revealed. There's coming tribulation wrath, and then there's what we call the eternal wrath of God that we'll study later on in this book. Right now, we're studying the tribulation wrath. Here's an overview, and it's important for you to understand the architecture, the structure of these Twenty-one judgments that will come. There will be seven seal judgments. In the seventh seal, we saw is contained seven trumpets. There's seven trumpet judgments. In the seventh trumpet, are contained seven bowl judgments. The seal judgments take you through the first three and a half years. Right in the middle of the tribulation, major event, a whole bunch of things happen. Right in the middle of the tribulation, go back. I'm not done. Uh, right in the middle of the tribulation, that seventh seal, something happens that's going to change everything. The Antichrist is going to go into the temple. He's going to commit the abomination of desolation. We're going to study that. We haven't seen it yet, but we're going to study it. During this same time frame, there's going to be an event that we'll study this morning that's going to preclude that. That's going to be the reason so many are going to embrace the Antichrist. And Satan will literally, with his fallen angels, at the same point, halfway through, be brought down to the earth. At the same point, these two witnesses that we saw, um, probably Moses and Elijah, no one can be dogmatic, but that's my best judgment, whoever they are, they're also going to preach the gospel. And so the last three and a half years of the tribulation is going to be different. And so when the seventh seal is open, that's the midway point, seven trumpets come, and the seventh trumpet are seven bowls of wrath. Now let's zoom in a little bit closer. Here's the uh, seven-sealed scroll. Remember, unlike the other judgments that come, when the seals are open, they're open just one at a time. So a seal is broken, you can see what's in that seal. Can't see the second seal until he breaks the second seal. But when the seventh seal is broken, you can see all seven trumpets and all seven bowls that happen in the second half of the tribulation period. In fact, when they see all of the coming judgments that are left, their breath is taken away. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. And so, here in these uh, seal judgments, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you have the tribulation martyrs, Satan going against all these people who have come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation. They're having their heads cut off. Then there's some cosmic changes, not to be confused with those that come right before the second coming of Jesus. And then in the narrative, there's a space of time. So, we've seen there's a pattern with all of these. There's seven, but between the sixth and seventh seal, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, between the sixth and seventh bowl, there's a a narrative section where God looks back, He reviews, and in some cases, He previews what is going to come. So while the action hasn't stopped, God pauses and He tells us what has been going on during this time. And of course, between chapters uh, 6 and 8... You have chapter seven where you have these two witnesses, uh, these 144,000 Jewish people who are witnessing to the world. 144,000 Jews are saved. Not by accident. Why? Because God is not done with Israel. Don't you believe for one skinny moment this replacement theology that has now, uh, taken, uh, a key place in American evangelicalism. It is just false. It is wrong. It is rooted in anti-Semitism. Most people who teach it are not anti-Semites, but if you look at the history of it, it goes back to Origen, it goes back to Augustine. Origen didn't want to say that there's a king who's going to come and rule on the earth. Why didn't he? He'd lose his life. So he spiritualized it and said the new Israel is the church and God is done with the Jew. Listen, Augustine said things that are so embarrassing to me. Some of you are with me in Yad Vashem, and the very first display we saw were the words of Augustine. It was just embarrassing. And then to read the words of Luther on that wall and the words of John Calvin and the hateful, heinous things they said about the Jewish people, I could have crawled under my chair. But you see, that all comes out of origin, Augustine, Catholicism, and these men come out of Roman Catholicism, many of the reformers, and they're teaching the same thing just with a different spin. It's very, very sad. So in the seventh seal, um, you have the seven trumpets. And so bring up the next scroll. And so we studied in the eighth chapter and the ninth chapter these six trumpets. And then we come to another space of time. And that's found really in chapters 10 through 14, or you could say 10 through 15. The 15th chapter is an introduction to the 16th. So what have we been studying during this parenthesis of time? Remember, it's not a literal stop in time. It's a pause in the narrative for God to review and to preview. And so in the 10th chapter, we saw the, the angel with his little book and the significance of that remember that? Do you remember the angel of this little book? <laughs> I think so. I hope so. And then, then we then we studied the, the two witnesses. remember the two witnesses? Uh, we know Elijah's coming back. How do we know? Because Malachi 4 says he's coming back. Jesus in the gospel said Elijah's coming back. I did a sermon once on the second coming of Elijah. He's going to come back during the horrible, terrible day of the Lord. It has never happened, but it's going to happen. And there's going to be another one with Elijah that, again, mimics... The <laughs> The ministries of Moses and Elijah. So, I suggested to you, though I would not be dogmatic, that that's who those two men are. So, we, we saw during this space of time the angel in the little book, the two witnesses. And then in the 11th chapter, we, we saw the trumpet blown, the seventh trumpet. And then there's again a narrative, kind of a double parenthesis. You don't see the effect of that seventh trumpet until you come to the 16th chapter, the 15th chapter, the shortest chapter in the whole Revelation, introducing us to the The 16th chapter. And so, in the second parenthesis, so to speak, in this section, uh, he is introducing us to seven personages, three that are brought together in this chapter. First, the woman, we saw the woman was the nation of Israel. Then the dragon, no mystery, it's identified as, the dragon is identified as the devil force. the male child, the Messiah. Michael, the archangel, we saw him. And then here in this 13th chapter, we also uh, see, well, in the end of the 12th chapter, the rest of her children, we'll talk about them in a moment, the saved Jewish remnant. And then in the 13th chapter, the dragon, along with the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, are brought together. Two beasts in the Revelation, don't confuse them. There's the beast out of the sea. He's called the Antichrist, typically just called the beast. But there's another one who represents the beast, who's called the beast out of the earth. That's the Antichrist false prophet. That's the one who takes the place of God, the Holy Spirit. Now look at the chapter as it opens here in chapter 13 in verse 1. It says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed. So in some translations, they take that section of the verse and they put it at the end of chapter 12. Some translations, they have 18 verses in chapter 12. But understand, those divisions are artificial, and they divide them up differently so you can understand who who he's referring to. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 12. So the dragon, who's been identified for us, in verse 9, it's no mystery, he's called the devil, Satan. Satan, you could say, was enraged with the woman, the people of Israel, and he went off to make war with the rest of her children who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you remember in the 12th chapter... In the middle of the tribulation, when the abomination of desolation is committed, Satan physically is thrown out of the heavenly realm down to the earth. His time is short, so he wants to wage war against the Jewish people like he'd never had before. Most of the Jews are going to heed the advice of the Olivet Discourse, and they're going to flee into the wilderness, just like Jesus said. And they'll be protected in one of three possible nations. We don't know which one, but we know there are three nations, not given geographical borders, what we would call today present-day Jordan, maybe literally Petra, where the Jews will be protected and preserved. And we'll see why when we come later in the dialogue of the Revelation. But not all Jews will flee. And those who don't flee, the rest of her children, Satan is going to try to attack and to kill. He'll make war with these who keep the commandments of God. Understand, Satan hates the Jewish people. There has never been a people in the history of man that have been more hated than the Jewish people are hated. He absolutely hates these people. And so knowing his time is short, He brings in an incredibly profound way his Antichrist to the forefront. He has been operating since the beginning of the tribulation, but now with new power like we're going to see this morning, his leader comes to the forefront. Now remember, in the opening verses of the Revelation, we learn that this revelation, this apocalypsis, this revealing, this unveiling of God was given or communicated, or signified. The Greek word translated in Revelation 1, communicated, is a word in Greek that refers to something that is given through a figure, through a symbol. And so, in the margin of the New American Standard, in the body of the King James, excuse me, and in some other translations, it said it was signified. I actually prefer that. The first Four letters of signified are sign, S-I-G-N. This revelation was signified. And so that means you have to figure out what the signs mean. And of course, one of the reasons some people have such great difficulty with the revelation is because they don't know their Old Testament or they don't understand the role of Israel. So I have a complete set of John Calvin's commentaries. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. Why? Because he didn't know what to do with it. He was all confused in his eschatology and the distinction between Israel and the church. He thought the church was the new Israel. He just adopted Roman Catholicism hook, line, and sinker in that particular realm. And so if you don't understand that God's not done with the Jews... It will become very confusing when you read the Revelation. Another reason it's confusing to people is because 300 of the 404 verses in the Revelation are from the Old Testament. In other words, they're Old Testament allusions without a single introduction. Moses said, David said, Isaiah said. It's just woven like a beautiful mosaic. And so you have to go back and say, oh yeah, that sounds familiar. That's from Isaiah. Let me go back. Oh yeah, I see what he's saying now. Okay, I get it. Or sometimes... Even within a few verses, he interprets the sign for you. So what are the seven candlesticks? No mystery. tells me a few verses later. Seven churches, and so on, all right? So some Christians, too, are just lazy. They don't really want to dig. They don't want to hunt it out like a man would seek after silver or gold, as Proverbs says. But I think God gave it for a reason. One is he wanted to keep people who were... Unbelievers during the tribulation who had rejected the truth from digging into the truth. And we'll see why in these next few weeks. But number two, and please understand, God's heart is to save people. But there's coming a time when the patience of God on some people is going to wear out. God will say, enough is enough. And because they rejected revelation over and over and over again, they will not be able to believe. Because they would not believe, they'll come to a point where they cannot believe. But in addition, I think God wants us to dig because when you dig into it, by the time you see the answer, it's like you don't forget it. Oh, I get it. And why does God want us to do that? Because he wants to change our lives. Look, while this is so important to the future, it is very important to uh, to the present in terms of what we're learning. So verse one again, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. What does that mean? Does he come up with scuba gear on out of the sea? Remember, we've seen the word sea is used two ways in the Bible. Of a literal sea or figuratively, even in English today, we say... Look at that sea of people. We're saying that mass of people. Or sometimes the two concepts are bled together, a literal and a figurative meaning. So he doesn't just say he comes out of a sea, but notice it's articular, the sea. You see that? Circle the word the in your Bible because that's in a very important article. It's not there by accident. Not the smallest jot or tittle will pass away from the Word of God. God inspired every mark in the Bible and he did so for a reason. And there are four great seas in the Word of God. There's the Dead Sea, there's the Red Sea, there's the Galilean Sea, or we call the Sea of Galilee, and there's the Great Sea. Today we call it the Mediterranean Sea. And so the scripture says in verse 2, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and great authority. Do you remember those animals? If you're with me in the study of Daniel, you remember those are the animals that Daniel used to describe successive empires of the world. And he writes of these empires ever before they came into existence. That's why the liberals detest Daniel. And they say Daniel was written after the fact. No one can write the future. Why? Because they have created a God in their own image, and they want to deny the supernatural nature of the Word of God. Of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls and their finding totally blew that argument out of the water. You cannot late-date Daniel. Daniel writes of it ever before it happens. But if you remember, all of these empires result in a fourth empire called the Roman Empire that Daniel speaks of. And Daniel also looks down at the carters of time when Messiah comes the second time when God will revive that Roman Empire. Here is where it is geographically. Here's the Mediterranean Sea or what in the Bible is called the Great Sea. And of course, all around it were the former nations of the Roman Empire. Now, the scripture says that this beast is coming up out of the sea. He is going to come out of this mass of humanity, which the second verse identifies geographically from the book of Daniel and the schematic I gave you. That's why I told you it's really important to understand Daniel, to understand Revelation. He is going to come out of the former Roman Empire. Now, That tells us where he is geographically. That's his origin. There's going to be a coalition of ten nations the Bible speaks of. Ten nations. An eleventh is going to come up amongst them. He's going to overthrow three, and he's going to take prominence over the others. And that man is called the little horn because he comes out of a country of insignificance at the time in human history when before Jesus comes. And he is then going to rule the whole world. So he's going to come from the former Roman Empire. Will he be a Gentile or will he be a Jew? Some assume because he comes from the former Roman Empire that that means he'll be a Gentile. He will not. He will be a Jew. Think about it. Let me give you four reasons why I know he will be a Jew. Number one, just because he comes from the former Roman Empire and not from the nation of Israel does not preclude his Jewishness. There are approximately 12.5 million Jews in the world today, maybe 13 million. There are Jews in America. We call them what? American Jews. There are Jews across Europe. What was the capital of the former Roman Empire? Of course, Rome. And so the scripture tells us in Daniel 9 that the Antichrist will be from the Roman Empire. He will be the prince who is to come. And so if you remember in Daniel 9, he wrote of two princes, one prince, the Roman prince, who would go and conquer Jerusalem and destroy it. It happened. Jesus also spoke of it, quoting Daniel, in 70 AD, literally. A few weeks ago, we stood uh, on the Herodian Way, And uh, next to the temple mount were all these stones. Where did they come from? Up high on the temple mount. There was a temple up there one day. And not one stone was laid upon another that was not thrown down to the ground. And we stood next to those stones. And it was fulfilled just like Jesus did. When was that fulfilled? In 70 AD. Then Daniel telescopes down into the future. And from the same body of nations is coming the prince who is to come. Now, for instance, in the second century BC, there are tombs that have been found in Rome, Italy, called the Yehuda Ittakim It means the Italian Jews. Now, they're not Italian ethnically, they're Italian geographically, just like Jews in America. Remember, the Bible does not measure uh, nations in terms of geographical boundaries only, but in terms of ethnicity So when the Bible says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, it's referring to all the ethnicities of the world that we are to go and to preach the gospel to. My point is, is that the fact that the Antichrist is coming out of the former Roman Empire, maybe Italy, no one knows, does not preclude his Jewishness. In addition, he comes as a messiah. He's called anti-Christ, as John will refer to him. You know what the parallel word for Christ is in Hebrew, right? What's the parallel word? Messiah. I heard someone say it, Messiah. So Messiah and Christ are equal terms. One's Hebrew, one's Greek, as they come in English, is Messiah and Christ. He's anti-Messiah, so he comes as a Messiah. If you spoke to a Jew today and you asked a Jew today, will your Messiah be Gentile or be Jewish? I don't care who they are, religious Jews or non-religious Jews, they're going to virtually give you a unanimous answer. A Jew. Why? Because that's what the Scripture spoke of, that he would be from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. He is going to be a Jew. So they're looking for a Jewish Messiah who is yet to come. In addition, again, it's inconceivable to me that since... um, uh, They're looking for a Jew, that he would be anything but a Jew, but biblically, that's how he is described. Let me give you a verse that Jesus gave us in John chapter 5. Do you know John chapter 5? You should. By the way, if a, if a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon... Or Christian science, or some other cult, or just some person who doesn't understand what the Bible teaches about Christ's deity, if there's one chapter that would help you, that would give you more evidences for the deity of Christ, it's John chapter 5. It's a great chapter to know. And so in that chapter, Jesus defends his deity. And of course, the Jews in his day were rejecting that. And so he makes this statement in John five forty three: I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Now, remember, unlike English where we just have one word for another, in Greek there's two words for another. There's the word heteros, which means another of a different kind, and there's the word alos that means another of the same kind. So we have our word heterodoxy. That's the opposite of orthodoxy. We have heterosexuals, so we speak of opposite sexes. But then there's the word alos, which means another of the same kind. Jesus there in the, that great discourse that he gave, he said, I'm gonna send another helper just like myself. In other words, he equates the Spirit of God to deity who comes to indwell us. Well, Jesus said, because you rejected me, there's going to be another one like me. How is he going to be like him? Not in that he's God, for there's only one Son of God. There'll be another like him, and that he will be a Jew. So, Antichrist. He is coming. He is the opposite of Christ and that he doesn't function under divine power. He functions, as we'll see today, under Satan's power. And so we've seen he comes in the uh, up out of the sea, but he also comes, as uh, Revelation eleven seven says, up out of the abyss. Well, what is it? It's both. Remember the abyss? Don't glaze over on me now. <laughs> uh, the abyss, that place where demons are, Locked up someday will be released someplace where a place where Satan will spend a thousand years. The abyss is a is a haven of satanic power. And so the Antichrist is going to have his power from the evil one. He's going to be a real human geographically from the former Roman Empire. And he's going to come with the opposite of Christ's power. He's going to come with evil power, but he's also going to come in the place of Jesus. Remember, anti means opposite of and instead of. And that's how the devil operates. He comes as an angel of light. Look at verse 2 again. I saw, or the end of verse 1, I saw the beast coming up out of the sea having 10 horns, 7 heads. And on his horns were 10 diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. I'm not even going to spend time on that because he's going to spend the whole chapter on it in the 17th verse, so I'll explain it when John does, all right? Um, With that said, notice how he functions. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Now, remember these descriptions come right out of Daniel chapter 7. Remember the leopard? Now, remember, here's Daniel. He is looking into the future. John is looking backwards. So he takes the same three animals in reverse order. So he first describes the leopard. If you remember in Daniel's prophecy, it represented Alexander the Great. Even the liberals don't deny that. They say, clearly, Alexander, no one else. They just say it was written after the fact because Daniel, unlike anyone, cannot write the future. But God wrote the future because God is God. That's why if you can't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe anything else. And that's why Genesis 1-1 is under attack today like never before. Theistic evolution is heresy. To say that God used the process of evolution to create the world is absolute heresy, and it undermines the very foundations of our faith. And so God is the God of the supernatural. God knows the future. And he spoke of Alexander the Great, who with great speed and swiftness conquered the nations of his day. Then he described the bear. And Daniel, if you remember, represented the Medo-Persia empire, this bear with his strong claws and massive strength who would stop anything. And then the lion with an appetite for power. Now, the prophet Daniel doesn't try to then take a beast to describe this coming beast. But John does, in that he takes all three beasts and he puts them together and he says, This is what the coming Antichrist will be like. <clears throat> It'll be like a leopard. And that with great swiftness of power, all of a sudden you can say, What happened? Yesterday, we we're the United States of America. Today, we're the United World of the world. You know, I mean, all of a sudden, things change so fast. That's what's going to happen when this man comes to the power. He will crush like a bear. No one, and I mean absolutely no one, will be able to stop him or oppose him. And like with the mouth of a lion, he will devour anyone who stands in his way. And how will he do this? And the dragon, who's the dragon? the devil, Satan. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. He has his power, his strength from Satan. He has his throne. He's a one-world leader from Satan, and he has great authority. He does as he pleases exactly how he wants to operate. Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Even so, when people will see the Antichrist, they will, in essence... See a man who is totally operating under the father of lies, the evil one. Now, let's dig further on your outline. You say, when are you getting to it? I'm getting to it now. Let's think about the Antichrist receiving the world's wonder. The first thing there on your note-taking outline that we want to talk about is the Antichrist is going to receive the world's wonder. They are just going to be in awe of him. Now, practically speaking, why is it that the people of this world are going to follow after this man? Well, two reasons. Reason number one, we already saw in the first horseman. The first horseman of the apocalypse is going to come as a peacemaker of the world, and that's exactly how the Antichrist is described as a man of peace. Why is it that yesterday on the news front and center was the president's son-in-law there in the Middle East Uh, laying the groundwork for another Mideast peace conference because God's not done with the Jew. Look, a hundred years ago when preachers like myself, I've told you before, preached about Israel, they were laughed out of their pulpits because replacement theology was embraced by virtually everyone. And they said, no, God said He would gather His people back in the land. God said He'd make them a nation in one day, and it all has happened and is happening. Why is it there's 195 nations in the world? Why is it that this little patch of land the size of Delaware with a group of people that are so small they seem virtually insignificant that they are front and center? Why is it that the whole world is interested in Israel? Because God is going to complete the return of his son through that nation. Just as he brought Jesus through Israel, he's going to bring him back through Israel. So number one, this man is going to come as a man of peace, and he's going to literally awe the world. The world is going to be blown away and that he's going to be able to do something in the Middle East that no one else can do. But there's a second reason why the world is going to follow this man, and it's the miraculous deception that is behind him. Look at verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now remember, the term beast, we've already seen it. We'll see it especially when we come to the 17th chapter, can have a dual nuance, kind of like Hitler. When we say Hitler bombed England, do we literally mean that Hitler got in an airplane and pulled the plug and switch and watched the bomb? Of course not. We're saying Germany bombed England. So we're going to see that the term beast will refer to his kingdom, but it will also refer to a literal actual person. So here's the rub of verse 3. John sees this beast who had a fatal wound that was healed. This man was dead and he's brought back to life major problem in some people's thinking. Not for me, but in some people's thinking. How can the Antichrist be brought back to life if resurrection from the dead is a unique qualification of the true Messiah? Remember what Jesus said in that great chapter proving his deity, John 5.21? Let me refresh your minds. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life, To whom he wishes in the Old Testament, God, Elohim, is unique in his ability not only to spin you together in your mother's womb, not only to create life, but also to raise dead people out of the grave. That is a privilege that God alone has. Jesus said, I have that same privilege, therefore equating himself to the Father in John chapter 5. So here's the point of Rob. If the Antichrist is a fatal wound and he's dead, and he's literally brought back to life, how does that equate with the claim that Jesus makes that he uniquely has a power with the Father to bring people from the dead? You following the argument? So here's how people deal with it. Some say, well, what's really being brought back to life is not the literal Antichrist, but his kingdom. It's referring to a nation that's been brought back to life. Now, I appreciate what they're trying to do because they're trying to protect the consistency of Scripture. The problem with that are many. Number one, there's a personal pronoun that is used, his, in this verse. He's not referring to an organization. He's referring to a person. And when you come down to verse 12 in a few weeks, it says the first beast whose fatal wound is healed. He's referring to a supernatural event that happens to a person. Well, other people say, well, um, it's not a nation that was raised because we've got this personal pronoun here. It's a fake resurrection. He wasn't really dead. He just appeared to be dead and then came back to life. Well, let's think our way through that. Number one, can Satan do the miraculous? Of course he can. There are many, many examples in Scripture where Satan does the miraculous. If you remember in the book of Job, he comes and he brings a tornado that wipes out Job and his family. In another case, he, he, he puts boils all over Job's body where the guy is in miserable pain. Uh, he works through the magicians of Egypt where they mimic and imitate the miracles of Moses, at least they attempt to. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of those who will cast out demons in my name and perform miracles in my name, and I will say to them, I never knew you. So Satan can certainly imitate miracles. In the Olivet Discourse, false Christs and false prophets will come and perform many signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So Satan can do miracles. So is it possible that Satan could have empowered this man to have been dead to be brought back? Of course. But we'll see. There's a difference between this miracle and the miracle that Christ did. In addition, it's very possible that God did this miracle. That God raised the Antichrist from the dead. Can can could, could God do that? Well, think about Judas for a second. Do you remember when he set out the 10? Bring up Matthew 10, verse 1. Yeah, there we have. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, his 12 disciples, that's Judas 2, and gave them, all 12 of them, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Judas himself who is an unbeliever, who is never saved, who this morning is in hell, did miracles. And who gave him that authority? Jesus did. Jesus gave him that authority on that occasion. So certainly, if God so chose, he could have given that authority uh, to Satan for the Antichrist to have been raised. Luther was absolutely right when he said the devil is God's devil. That is, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. But I think a more reasonable possibility is that Satan himself raised this person from the dead. But I want you to think your way through this carefully. If you were with me in my opening sermon in the Revelation... We saw from Revelation chapter one that Jesus is described as those who as a person who resurrects people from the dead. Now think about people who are raised from the dead in the Bible. There are eight cases in the Bible. There's Elijah who raises the widow of Zarephath's son. There's Elisha, his protege who follows, who raises the Shunammite's son. Uh, There's that man who's thrown into Elisha's gravesite. And he's put in there dead. And as soon as he touches Elisha's bones, he's brought back to life. There's the widow of Nain's son that is raised by Jesus. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. Jesus raises Lazarus. Peter raises Tabitha, uh, also called Dorcas, from the dead. And Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Eight resurrections. But all those people were raised to life. None of them were resurrected to life not one. Raised to life, not resurrected to life. Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, was raised back to life, only to die again, buried over there in Israel in some tomb. Jesus, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first one ever to be resurrected from the dead. And so when Jesus says in John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. So while Satan may raise the Antichrist, he will not resurrect the Antichrist. Jesus, uniquely with the Father, has the power to resurrect people out of a grave, and an hour is coming when he will call the righteous out of the grave for a resurrection body suited to walk in heaven, and he will call the unrighteous out of the grave with a different kind of body. Look, Easter has a really negative message as well as a positive message behind it. Every year, more people show up here for Easter than any Sunday of the year. I think I'm not sure why some of them are coming, because if they really understood Easter, for some of them, it's not a message of hope, it's a message of doom. Because just as I'm assured as a genuine believer in Jesus to be given a new body for heaven... The unbeliever who dies is an And I'm glad they come. It gives me a chance to win them. But listen, the man who dies is an unbeliever. His body right now is not suited for hell. He needs a resurrected body where the worm can never eat it up and the fire can never consume it or it will live forever and ever and ever in that awful place of doom that God wishes none to go to. So Jesus uniquely has the power of resurrection. So here's this man. Look further, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, one of the heads or persons on this beast, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. So here's how some argue this. I didn't get into this, but let me explain it now. Some would say, I saw one as if it had been slain. It was He wasn't really slain. He just kind of looked slain. And then he was raised from the dead. So, therefore, we have no problems with this resurrection. The problem with that is the exact identical terminology, not just in English but in Greek, and it can only mean one thing in the original, is used in Revelation 5, 6. And I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Was Jesus slain? Was as if slain? Was he literally dead? Yes, 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 yes. Say yes. All right, the Antichrist is literally dead, but he's raised. So think your way through this. Why is this going to happen? Here's a man. He has come on the scene as a peacemaker. The world loves him. He's done something that no one has ever been able to do. He's brought peace to the Middle East. Someone assassinates him. We're not told how. I don't know if they pull out a gun or a knife. He's assassinated. He's in a coffin. Just like the great presidents and leaders of the world lay in state. He's probably laying in state and all the cameras of the world are watching this coffin. And all of a sudden this man gets up and he's raised to life. You talk about amazement. You talk about wonder. People are going, as we'll see in a moment, fall at his feet, and they will worship this person. Why are they going to do this? Listen to these words in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's speaking of the Antichrist. Then that lawless one, he's talking about the Antichrist, one of his titles, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. We'll study that in Revelation 20. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. Don't miss that. Because today, people who are listening to my voice who have heard the plan of salvation because they did not receive the truth so as to be saved, verse 11, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. The only people who are saved after their church is taken out are people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. And so if you're listening to my voice today and the rapture happens this afternoon and you're not a genuine believer, I can tell you what's going to happen to you because the Bible tells me. You are going to believe the deception of the coming Antichrist. It will be a judgment of God Almighty. Jesus spoke of such judgments even in his day. Walk while the light is among you, that you might believe in the light and become sons of light. But then he warned that though many miracles were done in these people's presence, Because they would not believe, they could not believe, and God judicially hardened their heart. Listen to what God's going to do according to verse 11. For this reason, because of their unbelief, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe, as the NAS margin in King James renders it, the lie. And I think part of that great lie is when this man is in his coffin and he comes back to life, And the world is going to say, he is Lord. And they will follow him. Now, look, there's a lot of weird and crazy things that have been said about the Antichrist. I remember when John F.K. had a fatal wound. I was just a little boy. It was years later when I really read what was going on behind the scenes. See, at the 1956 Democratic Convention, Kennedy received 666 votes. And later in 1960, of course, he was elected. But he had already been branded with the number 666. And so when he was shot in the head and he lay in state, some evangelical pulpits across America were going wild, and they were just waiting for Kennedy to climb up out of the coffin. And this is why it is so important that you understand the big scheme of things. You know, a few weeks ago, when my daughter and I were talking about it, who's with us today, about, you know, the second coming of Christ was supposed to happen, I think, last week or something, the week before last. Again, you know, it couldn't happen, the second coming... Why? Because there's so many other things that have to happen before the second coming. Nothing has to happen for the rapture. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. You know, four or five years ago, some of you were saying, when are you going to preach in the four blood moons? I said, I'm not preaching in the four blood moons because it's sheer nonsense. And so we had these evangelical preachers who used sensationalism and they sold millions of books to make themselves wealthy. And now where are their four blood moons? Never happened. Oh, they don't talk about him anymore. Too embarrassing. Look, when you understand the big scheme of things, you can't easily be deceived by these little quirky events that people blow up into something that has nothing to do with anything. Look again here, and I saw one of his head's as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was literally healed, and the whole earth was amazed. They followed him. They are in utter wonder and amazement, which leads me briefly to my second point. The Antichrist will receive then the world's worship. Not only will he have their wonder, he'll have their worship, their adoration. Look at verse 4. They worship the dragon. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast. Now, remember, the term dragon refers to Satan. It's used 14 times in the Revelation, 8 times in chapter 12, 4 times here in verse 13, chapter 13, once in chapter 16, and if I remember, once in chapter 20. The dragon is Satan. People are going to worship Satan. Now, Satan has always wanted worship. Was that not the essence of his fall that we studied in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28? Exactly. He wanted to be like God. When he met Jesus at the time of the temptation, you fall down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus rejected such an offer, but this man will receive it. And they will worship him. Do you think they will literally, pastor, know they're worshiping Satan? I don't know. Maybe it will be like 1 Corinthians ten twenty. Bring up that verse. Paul is dealing with pagans in the city of Corinth who worship at some piece of furniture. Some of you here this morning are from India, and you know your country's covered over with people worshiping objects and animals and trees. I saw one dear man, looked as skinny as a rail, he looked like a living skeleton, and he was no doubt taking his family's milk and pouring it at the base of some tree to worship his tree god. Paul says, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. That little object, I'm sure they have a speaker God there because there's 300 million gods in India. Paul says they're not worshiping a speaker God. They're worshiping a demon behind that speaker God. And they won't just be worshiping the Antichrist. They'll be worshiping Satan who's operating behind the Antichrist. And they worshiped the dragon. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast. Oh, my. It's going to happen. And what will they conclude? It says, they will say, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? They'll say, no one's like, it's a rhetorical question. No one is like the beast. No one can wage war with him. Think about it. He was dead, but now he's alive. How can anyone in this planet, how can anyone in this universe wage war against the beast? There's none like him. The world will believe it. Now remember, this is not what God is simply saying for the future. This is what God is saying for today. And so let me bring this down to where we live with a few applications as we close. What can we learn today in terms of application? Number one, for those of you who know Christ as your Savior, you need to be discerning. You need to be discerning. Even today, without the Antichrist to do Satan's bidding, the Christian is still in danger of being distracted and worse yet, even being deceived. And for everything that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. And for everything that God has done, Satan has done a phony thing. I mean, think about it. Here's uh, a, a parallel between Christ and the coming Antichrist. The Lord Jesus performs miracles. So won't the Antichrist. False signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus claimed to be God in the human flesh. The Antichrist will come as the incarnation of God. Christ causes and inspires worship of the one true God. The Antichrist will encourage worship of the dragon, the false god, Satan. The followers of the Lord Jesus during the tribulation will be marked and sealed as God. So will the Antichrist followers be marked and sealed with his number on their forehead and on their right hand. In chapter 5, Jesus' name is said to be worthy. Worthy. The Antichrist, when God sums it up, they'll have names of worship for him, but God calls them blasphemous names. Christ will come and sit on a throne and rule from Jerusalem. So the Antichrist will come and sit on a throne and rule from Jerusalem. We're going to study that. Christ calls his bride holy. God calls the so-called or followers of the Antichrist when we come to the 17th chapter as a harlot. Jesus comes riding on a white horse. The Antichrist makes his preview as we study back in chapter 6 on a white horse. Christ has an army, so does the Antichrist. Jesus violently died, so will the Antichrist. Jesus is resurrected literally. The Antichrist will mimic resurrection. Jesus will reign the world, so will the Antichrist for a short time. Jesus is a member of the Holy Trinity. The Antichrist is a member of the unholy trinity. Satan always has his fakes. Even in churches like this, I wish it were not true, but God tells me in every local assembly, not only are there genuine believers, but there are tares. People who profess Christ who could perfectly answer the diagnostic questions, but have never truly been saved. And so Satan has his counterfeit church. We studied that back in chapter 3. We, we studied the synagogue of Satan, as it was called. Satan has his deceitful spirits as God has his Holy Spirit. And so we need to live in a day of discernment. How do you live in dis- with discernment? Listen to these words. Hebrews 5. For everyone who partakes only of milk and is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, he is a babe. Solid food is for the mature, and because of practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Do you know what? There are so many Christians who, in a babified way, they are exposed to the Word of God. Do you know what the seeker-sensitive movement has done in this country? It has destroyed the evangelical church where we've seen in the last two weeks the largest evangelical Protestant denomination in the nation coming unglued. Why? Because solid biblical teaching has been absent from the pulpits. And people have been given feel-good verses out of context that have nothing to do with anything. I listened to some of these guys and I could scream as I hear the air come from their mouths. Verses taken way out of context and people don't know any better because they have shepherds who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing and that is preaching the word. Don't get too heavy. Don't get too thick. Give it light. We want Christianity light because that's what will fill the churches. And we wonder why we have these mega churches with little to no impact and a nation that continues to implode morally because the church has lost its light in its salt. You need to know this book. And some of you, you didn't read it all week long. You picked it up when you came to church today. You don't want to be deceived. Now, if you know Christ, you can't lose your salvation. But I can tell you, you can be knocked off kilter. And there's some great days of deception that are unfolding. I would say, finally, if you're not saved, you need to be delivered. A counterfeit works well only because it looks like the real thing. And there's a lot of religious terminology being used today and people are being deceived. If you're here today and you don't know that you're really his, if you don't have the assurance that you've put your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, if the Spirit doesn't bear witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God, if you've not been made a new creature from the inside out, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away. All things have become new. You have a new capacity, a new proclivity, a new ability to be different. If that's not true of you today, my friend, you are in grave danger. And I would settle it in my heart before I left today. Call upon the name of Jesus and he'll receive you today. Let's bow together in prayer. Now, our Father, I thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ that you gave to John to write for us as bond servants, that we can read it and study it, be challenged by it, and changed as we apply the truths that are here. Help us individually as families, as dads, as moms, as we disciple our children, to disciple them with truth. May the Word of God first be in our hearts Said as we walk in the way, as we lay down, as we rise up, that we would be able to relate the Word of God to every aspect of life. Father, I pray today for someone listening, maybe they're on our Graniteville campus, maybe they're in Bluffton, maybe live streaming, even in another place in the world. Someone who's never received Jesus. Help them in simple, childlike faith to acknowledge what an offense their rebellion is to you, to change their mind and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone even today, Father, to do that and give them the courage to openly, without shame, to give Jesus the honor and the glory. And I ask it in His holy name. Amen.